Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, a media outlet which proudly lets its presenters tweet whatever they like. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me today is Doomsday Watch host Arthur Snell. Good morning Arthur, how are you? I'm fine Jarv, how are you? Good, yeah I'm good, thank you. Uh, Arthur, on to some some tangible stuff before we get into the the madness which we'll obviously have to get into. So Arthur, it's the, it's the second reading of the illegal migration bill on Monday. The government's tried to ignore or distract from any scrutiny there. How do you think Sunak and Brotherman will be feeling? Well, I think they will have prepped a lot of their own MPs to stand up and say this is a wonderful bill. You know, the, the Lee Anderson tendency will, of course, be out in force. But then on the other side of the coin, there will be those in the opposition that try to bring real scrutiny. I think that the limitation, though, is that the Labour Party is trying to tread a careful line. They don't want to alienate the so-called red wall voters that they need to win back. So whilst listeners to this podcast probably feel profoundly opposed to the bill, I think we won't see that represented necessarily in Parliament quite, quite as starkly. No, do you think there'll be enough pushback to make any sort of difference, to make any changes happen? I don't think they will in the Commons. Of course, it has to get through the Lords, and that tends to be where the sort of sanity, um, the sanity filter is applied, which is ironic because, you know, this unelected House of Aristocrats and uh, retired politicians at the moment is doing a reasonably good job of, of applying sanity checks to insane legislation. So there are protests happening against this, but this is clearly a government which either doesn't care about or doesn't really know how to read public opinion. Uh, do you feel that people are a little bit uh, powerless at the moment? I don't think there's much to be done. I think in the end, that the way that the public, and particularly those who are opposed, and we shouldn't forget, I think there are probably plenty of people who feel very strongly about the small boats issue, um, albeit you know they, they might not choose to uh, respond in quite the way that this government has. I think the, the way that ordinary citizens can make a difference is actually in supporting things like the protests against removal flights or even supporting in different ways these various legal actions. Because ultimately, what is so absurd about this bill is that it is almost certainly illegal under under international law, which means it's illegal under British law, because of course, you know, these laws are ones that we have written into our own legislation. So there will be some point fairly soon when the ECHR you know, the European court, which is not the EU court and the one that we still belong to, to, to the chagrin of some of the more headbanger tendency in the Tory party, uh, will probably strike down elements of this bill. And, and that is, in a way, the, the thing that is the break on this government that doesn't like to have breaks. Right. On to the, uh, the story that won't stop being a story, despite feeling very much like it's not a story at all. We're going to have to talk about Gary Lineker. Can this keep can this keep rolling, Arthur? I think this will keep running. Uh, it's almost as if the BBC didn't realise when they um, suspended Lineker that he's literally their top presenter, both in terms of what they pay him, but probably in terms of popularity. And if you think about it, if any, any major um, business that is reliant on certain key individuals then suspends that key individual, you know, if if Erling Haaland is taken off from City's bench. You, you can't yeah. expect the, the team to perform at that level. And it's, it, in a way, what's so absurd is that the BBC just assumed that everyone else would meekly carry on with their work when this extremely successful, highly effective, literally top-billing uh, presenter is publicly humiliated. And until the BBC... You know, the, 
the question of whether or not he broke guidelines feels to me like that that's actually disappeared from being the question mm. that matters anymore. But the question now is, how do you manage this sort of um, car crash of, of a self-inflicted wound? Yeah. yeah, it feels like they can never think two steps ahead. Yeah. Like it, was, okay. it seems really obvious that Ian Wright was going to say, I'm not going to do it as well, and Shearer would do the same. And then, you know, any person who could possibly step into the void would be persona non grata for for doing so so why would you ever do it it seems very very strange to me uh do you get the sense that anyone is going to take the fall here that's rumors about richard sharp do you think do you think he could go well it would certainly feel absolutely appropriate that he should go given that he's already in hot water over uh, organizing boris johnson's 800 grand loan and then basically misleading the public about it having done exactly that However, the reason I think he won't go this week on this issue is that there's already an investigation underway on the subject of the loan. And it seems that Sharp is is very tin-eared. You know, his his performance in front of that committee a couple of weeks back mm. suggested that he doesn't get that there's a problem. So I, I sense, I may be wrong, that he's going to try and tough it out. You could argue that Tim Davey should go, the Director General, who's the actual, you know, executive manager of the organization who of course is also um has a very strong background in the tory party uh but i think that's very unlikely so i i suspect that that no one that we've heard of is going to resign this week but you know it's it's very easy to be wrong about these things do you think it's going to be that sort of very bureaucratic defense we seem to be seeing at the minute from a lot of high profile people that they will wait out an investigation and then use the the smallest hint of light in that to totally vindicate themselves for everything. It seems to be exactly. I mean, it, it's it's strange, isn't it, Jav? Because in, in in normal life, if you screw up, you basically, you either think, can I get away with it? Or do I apologize now? But if you're in public life, the, the standard response is, I need to wait for the results of the independent inquiry. And that's, a, it doesn't matter what you've done, yeah. that's the answer. Yeah, no one seems to have any uh, any mind of their own, despite being in power to make up minds for people you would assume Indeed. anyway uh on on the public opinion side of this though Lineker seems to have he's been able to to get people backing him when it comes to being able to share his views but is it as clear cut that people actually support his sentiments yeah I, I don't think it is that clear cut but in a way that's not the point because the government treats the population as if it's moronic and they say if you support the idea of cracking down on small boats you will therefore regard Gary Lineker as an overpaid metropolitan elitist. And what it turns out is that the British people are perfectly capable of thinking, well, I don't necessarily agree with Gary Lineker on the small boats issue, but I think that he should be allowed to tweet his opinions. And furthermore, I haven't forgotten that he's an incredible footballer who made me very happy all the numerous times he won won games for England, you know, and it's the British people are capable of this sort of thing. And, and I do think there's something very, very Tory elitist about the way they've handled this, because it's this talking down. It's an assumption that there's this sort of mass of sim- simplistic working class, angry people who yeah. respond to very simple sort of uh, dog whistles. And it turns out that, you know, human beings are fairly sophisticated creatures and we're mm-hmm. capable of of putting together these complex and sometimes contradictory ideas. Is it revealing of their own shortcomings that they can't really put together particularly sophisticated ideas that they don't think anyone else can? 
Well, I, I think I think it certainly is revealing of their patronising and, and frankly disrespectful attitude to particularly their, the so-called red wall, that they, they regard them as a bunch of sort of simplistic, slightly angry, kind of instinctive people who will yeah. respond to certain stimuli. And oddly enough, they probably think that Gary Lineker slightly fits into this category as well, this sort of snobbery of, well, he's just a footballer, forgetting that he's an extremely sophisticated um, media professional yeah. who probably has the, the best advisors and strategists that money can buy because that's what we do know is he has plenty of money. Yeah, well, I mean, he runs a, a media company of his own, so clearly he's going to be quite well media trained, which they seem to have completely, completely missed anyway. But uh, it's budget week this week. So Jeremy Hunt, is he going to be happy that people might be distracted from this? Probably, because this is one of those budgets that you, you don't want people to remember. I mean, people will remember the uh, the Kamikaze budget for all the wrong reasons. Um, but basically, if you're the Chancellor, you have the quiet budgets, um, which are not near an election. And then you have the pre-election giveaway budget. Now, the, the fact that that's a thing tells us so much that's wrong with British politics. But before we get into anything that complicated, the basic point is, Hunt needs to get through the budget without causing too many scandals, you know, not too many interest groups discovering that their little tax break or their little benefit has been taken away. And hopefully the, the public will move on and not be too focused on the general point, which is that the cost of living crisis is still on us. Uh, the economy is still in a bit of a mess, not as much of a mess as it was last year. And you know, the wider headwinds in the global economy are still there in terms of the war in Ukraine and, and lots of associated challenges that go with that. Is there anything in particular we should be looking out for, even though it might be quite a quite a boring budget, as you say? Well, I think there's there's a few things. He's he's got to he does need to try to put some dynamism back into the British economy. Of course, since Brexit, there've been lots of good reasons for businesses not to operate here. But he can't do that through tax cuts. So there's things to do with, you know, how businesses can claim back certain sort of capital allowances and so on. But the, I think the really big thing is actually trying to get people back to work. And there is this whole back to work push. Uh, because as we know, a lot of people left the labour market after COVID. And thanks to the post-Brexit uh, immigration setup, it's very hard for employers to bring new workers in from outside the UK. So we, we have a labour market crisis, as we all know. Walk down any street and you'll see signs begging people to, you know, apply for jobs, in whether it's in shops or, or restaurants or whatever. But again, one of the reasons that people have left the labour market is that um, years of Tory policies have made it increasingly unattractive to work at the lower particularly at the lower ends of the labor market the sort of gig economy and, and that sort of thing why is hunt so uh, so under the radar generally is there a wider story going on here you know basically that sunak was kind of lumped with him because he came in to replace quasi karteng and then he couldn't really ditch him but now he doesn't really need the the sensible factor in the same way trusted is there a wider story uh, that reveals something about the conservative party to us sir well, I certainly think it reveals a government that is not very likely to win the next election. And they know that. And it doesn't mean they've given up. You know, to be fair, I think Sunak is 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 doing quite a lot of stuff. Um, and, and you have to give him credit for sort of trying his best. But I think Hunt himself, I, obviously, I don't know what his, his sort of deepest 
inner ambitions are. Obviously, he's tried to be prime minister more than once, but I think he must know that that ship has probably sailed. And that's not a bad position to be in if you're a chancellor, because a chancellor who's constantly scheming to become prime minister, whether it's Gordon Brown or whether it's uh, in, in more recent years, someone like George Osborne, is always a problem because they're always trying to upstage the PM. Whereas actually um, Hunt, all he knows that the best thing he can do is to be seen as somebody who stabilised the British economy after a complete car crash period with, with Kamikaze. So in that sense, being under the radar is probably very good for Hunt's wider brand, but also it's probably quite good for the British economy. There would have been a, a, a nice bit of poetic justice, though, wouldn't there, surely, if uh, Sunak had a, a scheming chancellor who really wanted to be prime minister after having uh, having been one himself would have been would have been a little bit of a, a kicker. Well, it's certainly, you know, history does have a habit of repeating itself. And and as I say, you know, Hunt has tried to become prime minister more than once. So we shouldn't rule out that he's still got ambition in him. He's not he's he's not an old man, you know, but I think it's certainly not a short term option for him. And I suppose that's the thing. On a uh, on a side note here, how worrying is the, the Silicon Valley bank collapse for us here in the UK? Yeah, this is very interesting. And for listeners who who not necessarily followed the story, this is a a specialist US bank that, um, as the name suggests, was very much embedded with the tech sector uh, in in California, but but spread its wings more widely. And one of the things that you often would hear about the US tech sector was how good it was at funding startups, at getting finance for businesses that may not turn a profit for several years. Well, that um, business model has hit a crunch with the combination of high interest rates and a general slowdown in the tech sector, a lot of kind of investors uh, losing um, losing faith in in some of the you know the more kind of whizzy tech companies, and and so the the, the bank Silicon Valley Bank basically collapsed. Um, now its its main branch is in the U.S., but it it has a significant business here as well, and and it's been taken over by HSBC. That's that's the news here on Monday morning. Now the the question is, you know, what are the wider implications of this? Well, you've got a huge amount of venture venture capital, private equity money that's flowed into this sector. Um, and as we all know, some tech businesses run for years without turning a profit and very much depend on the faith of their backers, you know, to, to keep pouring money into them. So this it, it's quite possible to believe that you could have a bit of a contagion and people across the, the different sectors that invest in tech sort of scratching their heads and thinking, mm, are we overexposed here? Do we need to draw in a little? Now, I, I don't think I'm... I'm not an investment specialist. Um, people are saying this isn't at the scale of the 2008 financial crisis, which is good because that was pretty massive. But it's still a very significant part of the modern global economy. So I think it is quite troubling. On a on a final domestic note, we've got junior doctor strikes happening at the moment. How much of a concern is this is this situation? Is there any chance of it being resolved swiftly? Do you think as well? I'm not sure that there is, and I I remember from the last junior doctor strike that. People often don't realise that a junior doctor is almost every doctor except for the senior ones. And so, you know, it's a slightly misleading term. If you go to hospital, almost every doctor you see will be a so-called junior doctor. And so these are the absolute backbone of the kind of doctor workforce. And they were, as it happens, under Jeremy Hunt, uh, very uh, mistreated during the last strike. And 
it's not not always been the case that the senior doctors, the consultants, have always had their back. That's I, I say this as someone who at the time was married to a junior doctor, who although she's now a consultant. Um, I think there's there's sometimes a little bit of tension between the two levels. So it, it's not clear to me that, that this situation will easily be resolved. You've got huge pressures on that workforce. You know, that it's they're, they're paid much better than nurses, but they still, after qualification, don't earn particularly large salaries. That the, the sort of famously well-paid doctors are much higher up the, the scale. And a lot of them have huge debts because they've been students for maybe 10 years or more. They have a lot of costs that they can't avoid. They have to be keep current with exams and professional memberships, and they're supposed to pay for that. And ultimately, uh, the NHS is, is can be a pretty demanding employer. You know, they work incredibly long hours. So it's not clear how this is easily solved. And while all this is going on, uh, Sunak is off in the in the US. Uh, but it's not a jolly. He is meeting Joe Biden. What's the what's emerging from that trip? Well, it it's um it's a sort of trip that I was thinking this morning. It, this must be the trip that makes Boris Johnson so jealous that he's no longer prime minister because <laughs> the the purpose of this trip is for the US, the UK and Australia to meet and chat about AUKUS, which, as we'll all remember, was that famous defence pact which got the French so upset because it involved making submarines for the Australians. Oh, yeah, and, and, the, and the Australians dropped the, the deal that they already had with the French. And of course, Boris Johnson would absolutely love this, striding the world, talking about big things like submarines, meeting uh, you know leaders of other large Anglosphere countries, which is very much where Boris feels his um you know his natural environment now of course there's no reason why rishi sunak can't perform a, a solid role in, in that context as well but what happens when you have those meetings is that the us side starts to ask fairly searching questions about the british defense budget and instead of it being a big sort of parade of self-congratulation uh the us side starts to say well britain are you really a serious defense partner for us because you've been cutting your defense budget a lot of your kit doesn't seem to work your army is tiny so we've got now to add to the list of headaches going back to jeremy hunt's budget they've got to find more money for the military at the same time as all the other things they've got to find money for what's he been saying about that defense budget side of things i know he's announced a couple of other plans what are they well, he's he wants he's pledged to increase defence spending by nearly five billion over the next two years, and that's that would be committing to a two and a half percent. I think that's right. Yeah, two and a half percent of uh, GDP, which is which is over the two percent target, but way short of the kind of stretch target of three percent, which these days most people are saying has got to be a bare minimum. Now, Liz Truss, of course, had committed to three percent, although. You know, Liz Trust made all kinds of commitments, none of which were, um, uh, you know, were clear how she was going to do that. <laughs> but, but there's also going to be an updated, uh, integrated review, and that's a sort of the big defence and national security document. And it's very clear what's happened here. The we some of us will remember Boris Johnson teasing the Defence Committee about the fact that tank battles in Europe were no longer a thing. And that was in uh, 2021, November, if I recollect. Now, we all know how that particular prediction panned out. We are in a world of major land warfare in Europe. 
and the British military just does not have the uh, the capability to deal with that. And you get what you always have, which is the different arms of the military, army, navy, air force, all sort of fighting like cats in a sack over who gets what slice of a rather small pie. On US news, this seems like a question that's been asked forever, but let me ask it one more time. Arthur, is the is the law going to catch up with Donald Trump this week? Oh gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful? There are so many things that he could um, could and should uh, face uh, criminal sanctions for. Organising an insurrection feels like a pretty important thing. Trying to bully the election officials in Georgia into finding, as he called it, was it 11,000 votes? But it looks as though the thing that may catch him this week was paying hush money to the porn star Stormy Daniels. And this one is goes way back before he was even president. Um, and, and you'll recall that Stormy Daniels is a uh, is a, a talented actress, we might say, in a particular genre. And uh, she and she and Donald Trump had some kind of a relationship. Uh, and then she was paid off. Um, and this is the thing Michael that, Cohen, right? Yes, Michael exactly. Cohen Michael yeah. Cohen, Donald Trump's uh, sort of at that time, wingman, bagman, uh, was the person who, who paid the funds. Now, of course, since that time, uh, that the reason it might be illegal is that they used campaign funds to do so. And it is not conventionally seen as a legitimate use of political campaign funds to pay off the porn star you've been shagging. So um, <laughs> whether or not uh, this is the thing that finally catches Donald Trump, it, it would sort of have a delicious irony to it if, if this was the thing that finally got him. But of course, the US legal system is very kind to people with lots of money and expensive lawyers. So I don't think we can assume that it's all over for him. Is there an issue that this could all add to the the sort of Trump folklore, though? You know, if he's if he's charged, but then he's not convicted, it lets him do this whole victim narrative of fighting against a, a deep state that's out to get him. And if that also then loops back around to being that it was because he was having relations with a very attractive woman, then that actually could boost him quite a lot as, you know, his sort of regular guy sticking it to the man shtick that he tries to go with. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly, I'm sure, how he will try to respond, that he's a victim of the deep state and he's just a, you know, he's a regular guy doing what any guy would do sort of thing. I guess that the limitation of that argument is one that if he actually faces criminal charges, it is less likely that the Republicans will select him as their presidential candidate. I'm not saying it's unlikely because after all, everyone said it was unlikely last time and they did select him. Yeah. But it makes it less likely. And the other thing is that, you know, the victim narrative with the with the deep state paranoia, yes, that has a huge uh, support base in the US. But let's not forget that Donald Trump is not very successful in elections. He's won one, his own, in 2016. All the other elections, whether it's midterms, he's, his track record is pretty poor. So it seems to me that um, the there's a small core of nutcases who think that Donald Trump's amazing and maybe he, you know, that some of them believe in QAnon and all kinds of fantasies. And then there's a bigger group of Republicans who would love to be shot of Donald Trump, but lack the um, backbone to do anything about it. And uh, if he's taken off the scene for them by law enforcement, they might be quite, um, might, might be quite glad of that. 
And listeners, if you want to hear more about the future of the GOP, go back and listen to the Bunk USA that I did on that I did on Saturday. So it's a bit of a bit of self promo there. Arthur, finally, what's the what's the latest from Ukraine? Yeah, so the battle of Bakhmut continues. Um, I think we're into seven months now. Bakhmut, as as I'm sure everyone is now well aware, is a fairly small town in the Donbass of basically no strategic value that Russia has been pouring unbelievable resources into trying to take. And it is it has been the subject of a considerable discord between the main Russian military and the Wagner group, this, you know, mercenary unit run by uh, Prigozhin, uh, one of Putin's uh, uh, close um, associates. Now, we hear a lot about the losses that Russia has taken in trying to seize Bakhmut. And the Ukrainian strategy was to keep them busy in Bakhmut, losing equipment and men, and, and that stops them from doing anything anywhere else. But of course, we have to recall that that means the Ukrainians are also suffering losses there, that you, you can't defend without losses. And I think there's starting to be a little bit of nervousness around whether or not Ukraine has actually wasted resources in the defense of something that is of little value to them. Uh, when, of course, those resources are also limited for them. And and it plays into a wider discussion, which is that we talk a lot about Russian casualties, and rightly so, because Russia has faced enormous casualties in a war that it started and, you know, a war that it failed to, to plan adequately for. But Ukraine has also suffered enormous casualties, and, and those figures are are rarely accessible. And, and the Ukrainian government, understandably, but still, is very, very sensitive about a sort of, you know, discussion and articulation of those casualties. So the, the Bakhmut battle, whilst it is it is definitely tied the Russians down and caused them immense costs, uh, we shouldn't forget that it's costing the Ukrainians as well. This is a way off, but there are reports that Putin might go to the G20 in September. How are other nations going to react to that this week? This is because the G20 will be hosted by India, which has taken... Uh, no side on this conflict, really, between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And they are trying to play the role of a uh, non-aligned superpower in a world which is increasingly drifting into uh, blocks, whether you're on a kind of Russia-Chinese block or a kind of US-Western block. I think if Putin does attend, you'll have lots of um, debate around how will Western leaders give him a cold shoulder whilst not offending their Indian hosts. Um, But of course, as you say, it's still a long way off and other things may happen between now and then. But it is a reminder that on the world stage, there's quite a lot of countries that whilst they don't support Russia, don't feel actively opposed to Russia in the way that we do in the sort of NATO Western world. And it's, it's good to be reminded of that. Arthur, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. And that's Start Your Week. If you enjoy The Bunker, remember you can back us on Patreon for £3 a month. You'll get episodes early and ad-free, as well as shout-out on this show. Here's Arthur with today's. Well, our thanks to Jeremy Bate, Frank Chart, and Simon Mulvaney. Thank you for listening. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? 
In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.